First Thessalonians in chapter four. Different people learn and listen differently, but you may want to have, if you don't, you may want to have it open so that you can consult the text as we discuss it this morning. First Thessalonians in chapter five. And I'm starting on verse 13, which is page 958, if you're using a pew Bible. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray for Lord's help and then think together about what we just heard. Holy Father, thank you for gathering us. Thank you for these words of comfort and encouragement. Thank you for how many lives and Churches have been encouraged and blessed by these very words. Thank you that they're not just words, but they are true. Thank you that you are a God of truth and you are a God of communication. I pray that you'd help us to understand what these words mean. I pray that you would help us to believe them in our hearts. And I pray that you would help us to live accordingly. In Christ's name, amen. All right, well, this morning, we, as you could tell by hearing that passage, we've come to the part of Thessalonians that deals with eschatology. Eschatology, as you know, that's a big word. Ology, though, means study of, right? Anything ending in ology is the study of that thing. The word eschatos, that's a Greek word. It means last. So eschatology is the study of the last things or the study of the end times or the study of how history wraps up and we transition into the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I don't know how familiar each one of you is with the various end times theories. I expect that some people in the room have thought a lot and studied in great detail about the end times, eschatology, and I would imagine that others in the room probably don't find this topic especially interesting and haven't studied a lot about it. Well, this would not be the time or the place for me to go into lecture mode and explain all the different eschatological views that different Christians have embraced over the centuries, but I do, just for context, need to give just a very brief overview. If you'd like to talk about things in greater detail, I'd love to, but I just want to do a flyover about uh, three main options. Uh, But before I do that, let me just say at the outset one thing I'm not going to do this morning. 
I'm not going to make any predictions about governments and world leaders. I'm not going to give any dates or even ballpark estimates. I'm not going to try to interpret the headlines in the light of eschatology. I know that we are all deeply concerned about what's happening in the world, about what's happening in the Middle East right now. We're concerned about the loss of life, and we are concerned about the possibility of escalation. But I do not intend to draw any connections between that and our scripture passage this morning because I simply don't know if what's happening there is an indicator of the end times or is simply the regular, ongoing, sometimes tragic and sad course of human events, which has always included wars and suffering. What I do know is that we are closer to the return of Jesus now than we've ever been before. And I'll leave it at that. All right, briefly, here are the three main options for the eschatological views when it comes to your understanding of the millennium. Well, there's a lot of big words in that sentence. The millennium is a reference to a particular verse in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, which talks about the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. Specifically, it says this, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, based on that verse, and then a few other related texts, most Christians fall into one of three categories. Premillennial, amillennial, and postmillennial. The premillennial view, probably the most complicated, has the most subcategories, but the basic idea is that at the end, there will be some sort of intense tribulation with wars and persecution, probably the rise of a figure called the Antichrist, possibly a one-world government. Most likely the temple gets rebuilt in Jerusalem and the sacrificial system is resumed. Now, some people think that either prior to or during this tribulation, the church is raptured out of here and into heaven. Others who hold this view don't buy that part specifically. Um, but then after that period of tribulation, Jesus will return to earth and establish his reign on earth, not forever, but for a thousand years, and then subsequent to that thousand-year reign, Satan escapes from his prison, leads a rebellion, and then once that rebellion is crushed by, crushed by Jesus, then we, the people of God, will be with Jesus forever in the new heavens and the new earth. I'm skipping over a lot of details there and a lot of sub-options, but that's the basic idea of premillennialism. According to this view, Jesus could not really come back any day because certain things need to happen first before he returns. So for example, if you're someone who thinks that the temple needs to be rebuilt in Jerusalem before Jesus returns, then he can't come back today because the temple isn't rebuilt yet. And so people who hold this view are often watching the news and looking for the signs or events that will signify the return of Christ. Ah, that's premillennialism. Ah, millennialism emphasizes the fact that we're not waiting for Jesus to return and start reigning because he's currently reigning right now. Amillennialists, and I'm going to start using the word, the pronoun we here because this is the view that I personally hold. 
We believe that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father right now, and all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And yet, there is a a sense of already and not yet. That's a common phrase you you hear. So, um, it's true that he's reigning and has authority, all authority, but we're not yet in the new heavens and the new earth. And so, even though Jesus is reigning now, Bad things still happen now. And both can be true at the same time. Jesus can be reigning right now, which he is. And for reasons that we might not have access to, he also allows suffering and hardship and evil to take place. So for an amillennialist, we are currently living in what the Bible refers to as the last days. That, that phrase, the last days. But... What we believe is that these so-called last days began when Jesus ascended back up to heaven to reign. And they have been going on now, these last days, for roughly 2,000 years so far. And like so much else in the book of Revelation, we understand that nice round number of 1,000 as a figurative number, not a literal number. All millennialists do not believe that the church is raptured out of the world before the Lord returns. They do not believe that Jesus will return and establish a temporary reign of a thousand years before another rebellion takes place. They believe, we believe, that Jesus will come back once in a very public and definitive way, that he will deal with evil once and for all, that he will establish the new heavens and the new earth definitively and permanently, and that we will be with him forever. This is the view that the Reformed Church has traditionally embraced. And as I've mentioned, it's the one that I personally hold. And here is the stated position of the CRC on this topic. It says, although the Christian Reformed Church is generally amillennialist in its eschatology, and especially in its interpretation of the book of Revelation, its assemblies have never made a specific pronouncement to that effect. In response to a theological challenge to its underlying eschatology, the Synod of the CRC adopted the following succinct statements in 1920, which implicitly reject dispensationalism and some forms of premillennialism. It goes on from there. I won't read it, but you can if you go to the CRC website. That's amillennialism. The final view is by far the most optimistic Postmillennialists believe that the world is going to keep getting better and better and better, not worse and worse. As the message of the gospel spreads throughout the world and more and more people come to faith in Jesus, postmillennialists believe there will be a global revival. The Lord's name will be honored and glorified in every tongue, tribe, and nation. Not by everyone, but by a very large number of people. And then the scene on earth will be set for the return of the Lord to establish his kingdom. That's postmillennialism. Now, I don't, from here on out, I don't intend to say much more about premillennialism and postmillennialism because I don't hold those views. But I do know that people who do hold those views, and I know that they hold them quite strongly. I respect that, and I guess all I want to say is if that describes you, I'm available and I'd love to talk about that and to learn from you. Our passage this morning is somewhat infamous because it contains the one and only verse that refers to what's known as the rapture. There may be other verses in the Bible that allude to the rapture, 
But this is the only one that directly talks about it. So what is the rapture? It's the idea that the people of God are lifted bodily up into the sky to meet the Lord. It's kind of crazy if you think about it, if you picture it, but that's, that's what the rapture is. Now, what verse says that in our passage? Well, this one, the one that says, After that, we who are still alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's the rapture. Now, what you make of that verse, how you interpret that verse, says a lot about your understanding of eschatology. There's a popular view which has inspired the writing of many novels and movies. I think, I think it's, it's, so many books are written about it is because it's, it's quite a dramatic and cinematic plot line. It teaches that there will be a secret rapture whereby all Christians are lifted up out of this world, but the rest of the world keeps going from bad to worse until Christ comes again. I don't subscribe to that view. I do know a lot of people who do. One thing that I've noticed about people who hold that view is they really tend to love their Bibles a lot, and I find that admirable. I just don't share their conclusions on this point. I think that the Bible in general, and our passage in particular, teaches that Christ will return one and only one time, not once secretly and once publicly, and that the return of Christ will be dramatic and public and universal. And by that I mean everyone will know it when it happens. No one will be wondering, has he returned or not? Everyone will know, yes indeed, he has returned. And what I see here is that those who have already died in the Lord at that time are somehow coming with Jesus. They'll be there with him when he returns. There'll be a big crowd. And those of us, whoever us is, those who are still alive, haven't died yet, alive in the Lord, will at that moment somehow be elevated up into the sky and meet Jesus and that group of saints that he is returning with. And then they all, the people who were alive and are now up in the sky, will do a U-turn and they all will come back down to earth for the final judgment and then Jesus will establish his kingdom on earth. I know we have a tendency to, sort of an impulse to think that heaven is up there somewhere, way up there in the sky. But I believe the Bible teaches that the new heavens and the new earth will be right here. The theological word for the time when Jesus comes back is parousia. Parousia means appearing. That event is described maybe most famously by Jesus himself in, uh, in the book of Matthew. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds. That's what I was trying to get at with the kids, right? They're going to gather his, wherever they are, they're going to find them and gather them. It says, from one end of heaven to the other. And that is what we wait and watch and hope and pray for. All right, I've talked about a few of the different positions. But one thing that all the views agree on, this is a happy, a happy point of agreement, is that when Jesus comes back, he's coming to judge. Again, here's how Jesus said it in his own words, Matthew 25 when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, 
Then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The Apostles' Creed summarizes the idea with the words, He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Those are intense words. They surely ought to put a tremble in our knees, but should they strike fear in our hearts? No. Not for those of us who are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Why? Because our sins have already been judged when Christ suffered on our behalf to pay for our sins. And so that is why we don't, we don't dread the return of Christ to judge the living and the dead. We look forward with hope for that day because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That will be the day when the things that we have believed by faith will be seen with our eyes. That will be the day when evil is finally and definitively defeated and when love wins the war. This is why in our passage it says that Christians do indeed grieve. We do. Because we die like anyone else dies, and death is sad, so we grieve. That's natural, appropriate. But we don't grieve as the rest of the world does. We grieve differently. We grieve as those who have hope. We grieve with hope because we know that death and grief and sickness and sorrow don't get the last word. I was, at, I was at a funeral service this past week, Wednesday, and it, it was not a joyful gathering. It felt like a funeral, literally. No, no, there was no joy. There was no joyful singing. It was a heavy, heavy, heavy feeling. I, 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 didn't, count, I didn't see any, any smiles. I didn't, I didn't hear any words of hope. It was just hard. One time I heard an atheist say, look, Christians don't really believe what they say they believe, and if you want proof of that, attend one of their funerals. It's just the same as anybody else's funeral. It's just sad. When I hear that, I think, that person definitely hasn't attended a memorial service at Ebenezer because that is not what it feels like when we gather for a celebration of life or a memorial service. Uh, We haven't had a whole lot of those in the time that I've been here, but we've had some. And what I have noticed every time we've had one of those is that it is an appropriate and biblical mix of true sadness and grieving combined with genuine hope and joy in the Lord. That is the way that we are supposed to grieve. And it is supposed to look and feel and sound differently than the rest of the world. And by God's grace, that is what happens here. In our, in our passage this morning, when Paul talks about the great day of the Lord, he includes all Christians from all times and all places who have ever lived. All of us on that great day are going to be gathered, reunited for people that we knew before or, or making new acquaintances for people that we've never met before. Just picture that scene. All of us gathered. The Lord Jesus Christ, in a public and spectacular way, descending from heaven in the same way that he ascended. 
And voices are, it's loud, it's going to be loud. Voices are shouting, trumpets are blaring. The dead in Christ rise first. All those who have lived and believed in Christ and died in Christ will somehow, I don't know how, be resurrected. And it would appear that they have been resurrected and are gathered together with Christ and are coming with him. And then all of those who are in Christ and still alive are apparently swept up to join the crowd and meet the Lord in the air. And from that moment on, we will always be with him and always be with one another. Does that answer every question we might have? No. Does it tell us everything we need to know? Yeah. And what is the benefit of knowing this? How is this going to make a daily difference in our lives? Well, it says right there in verse 18, and so I'll close with this. It says it. It says, it describes all of these things that are hard to understand and are way outside of our experience. And then it says, encourage one another with these words. That's what we're supposed to do with this information. Encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another. With these words, these things have been revealed to us for our encouragement. Listen, you and I were made in the image of God, and we were not made to die. Death came later. Death is a distortion, and we all feel that. But one of my favorite expressions of that is by the, the singer Tom Waits, who's not a Christian, but got this one right. In the opening line of the song, The Fall of Troy, the opening line is, it's the same with men as with horses and dogs. Nothing wants to die. That's true. Animals don't want to die. Humans definitely don't want to die. But we all do die. And we instinctively know that we are only one accident or illness or attack away from death. And even under the best of circumstances, we get, on average, maybe four score years and we feel that tension between loving life and wanting to live and knowing that, yeah, but one day I'm going to die. Yesterday, I was flying on a plane. These days, you know this, when you're on a plane, everyone is distracted in their own world, right? They're do everyone's doing something when we're flying, either watching a movie on that screen embedded in the seat in front of you or listening to headphones or, in my case, writing this sermon. And... Uh, all it takes in that moment, all it takes is for that seatbelt sign to like bong, to flash on, and you hit it just an unexpected rough patch of turbulence. And all you have to do is look around at that moment at the faces, and you realize, oh, okay, we were all doing our own thing a second ago, but we're all on the same boat here. We're all on the same plane here. And we all want to get there safely. None of us really wants this day to be the day when we stand before our maker. Well, as you can tell, we made it safely. But the fact that the plane arrived safely, I'm not kidding, literally, the second I wrote that sentence, <laughs> the fact that the plane arrived safely, uh, we hit turbulence and the, the seatbelt sign went on. I thought, oh, maybe I have to delete that sentence. <laughs> But as you can tell, we made it. <laughs> I thought I jinxed us, but we made it. And, uh, but here's the thing. That safe landing yesterday, that just only defers the inevitable. One day, for each of us who was on that plane and for each of us in this 
room, one day, unless the Lord returns first, one day there will come a day when you wake up in the morning and you don't make it to the end of the day. Now, no one wants to think about that. Many here are wishing I would stop talking about it right now, but this passage tells us to think about that. And it goes on to say that that should be a source of encouragement because Christ has defeated death on our behalf and Christ is coming back to gather us up so that we will be with him forever in a place where there is no death. So be encouraged this morning. Be encouraged that history is not a random series of events, of events, some of which are bad and some of which are good, but rather history is the story that our sovereign God is telling and it has purpose and it has meaning and it is going somewhere. And be encouraged that even though the cloud of death still hangs over life ever since the fall, God in his sovereignty and compassion has done something about death. He has defeated death by sending his son to die in our place. And be encouraged to know that those who have gone before us and have died in the Lord are not lost. But we will see them again and we will be with them forever. And be encouraged to know that Jesus Christ is currently reigning at the right hand of the Father and he will one day return bodily to establish his kingdom forever. And be encouraged that right now, at the same time that Jesus uh, is reigning at the right hand of the Father, he is here with us by his Spirit and we can experience fellowship with him on earth now. And finally, final point of application, live life in such a way today so that when that day comes, either the day of your death or the day of his return, you will be ready and that will be a day of joy. I'll let the Apostle John have the final words here in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28. He said, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. Let's pray together. Lord, as I think about those words, those last words that I read that your servant John wrote, and as I remember that John, John had seen you, Jesus, in the flesh. He knew you. He knew what you looked like. He knew what you sounded like. He knew what your laugh sounded like. He knew what you preferred to eat and not eat. He knew you. And he was looking forward to and longing for that day when you would come back. And he instructed us to do the same. And he encouraged us to live in such a way that that day would be a good day. That that day would be a day of joy. That that day, that our hearts would feel like running toward you in joyful, worshipful celebration and not shrink back away from you in shame or regret. And so I pray for each one of us that we would live our lives in such a way that that will be our experience on that day. And Lord, I believe, because you have said, that that day is approaching for each of us, one way or another. And yet, you have not called us to uh, 
to fear. We do fear you, Lord. We tremble before you. But we are not frightened of the judgment because we believe that we have been received and forgiven because of the sacrifice paid for us by your Son. And so we pray along with the saints who have prayed for centuries, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.